0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: It's time to celebrate. The Adam Carolla Show just hit its 10-year anniversary, and Adam is kicking it off in style. Join Adam this week as he welcomes late-night talk legends Jimmy Kimmel on The Adam Carolla Show and Jay Leno on CarCast. Congratulations, Adam. Download The Adam Carolla Show and CarCast every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a two guest podcast, not together, separate but two different conversations that I really enjoyed. The first is with Jared Dubin. He wrote a fascinating piece on zone defenses for FanSided, also has some good stuff coming out at 538, and we talk about the zone piece, we talk about where the league is going, the top of the East, what we're watching the rest of the year, all that. And then first-time guest of Real Jam Radio, Aaron Warsoul, who is the co-host and producer of the Official Lakers podcast, talking about the Lakers. And I mean, what's happened since the All-Star break, the young guys, where this team is going, and and that's a good conversation. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% up bonus and true car. Great place to sell or trade in your car. The episode in total runs about an hour and a half. It's two different conversations. The one with, with Dubin runs about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it the place I want to start with you is the piece that you wrote, was that a couple of weeks ago, uh, about zone defenses that came out at Fansided. And it was something that I actually paid pretty close attention to. Obviously, this was well after the piece came out. In Wednesday night's brooklyn okc game early on i mean brooklyn was succeeding on defense in a lot of different ways but one of the things they did was they were i guess the best way to put it is they were baiting okc into some bad shots and those bad shots weren't going in though okc figured a lot of it out by the end of the game
2: yeah i mean uh kenny atkinson in his after first quarter interview said that they let up a basket on every zone possession they played in the first quarter um <laughs> which I I think was true. In the second quarter, it worked great, and Oklahoma City's offense looked terrible. And then in the third quarter, Russell Westbrook came out and just started carving it up for essentially the entire second half. Um, They sort of, I don't know, necessarily solved it, but they did very well against it in the second half, and that led to them coming back and winning by, I guess, double digits. Um, But the piece sort of just came out of, Um, I happened to be watching the Heat Clippers game in December where the Heat, you know, debuted their zone for its first extended run. They, you know, and I go through this in the piece, they were playing um, down five guys already. Three of them were starters. And then Tyler Johnson, who usually comes off the bench but was starting in that game, got hurt early in the game. So all of a sudden they were down to eight guys. And one of them was Udonis Haslam, who to that point in the season had played six minutes and has played six minutes since that night. Um, and then four of their eight guys, including Haslam, were in foul trouble. So Eric Spolster decided that he was going to go to the zone. And um, it really worked for them, especially in the fourth quarter. They held the Clippers, I think, to two for 15 shooting in the fourth quarter and blew them out. And they just basically started using it ever since. And I started... I. Had just randomly been watching that game that night, that was one of the games that I chose to watch. And I don't think I actually would have noticed as how much zone is being played around the league if I was one of the people that sort of bounced around from game to game every night, where, you know, instead I'll watch an entire game. Because basically, you know, you would see teams in previous years use it for, you know, a possession or two, coming out of a free throw or an out-of-bounds play or whatever, but I don't know that I would have noticed teams doing it for extended stretches like they are this year, like the Heat, the Nets, and a few of the other teams that I wrote about in the piece. If I'd been bouncing around, I don't know if I would have noticed that. So it sort of sprung out of that that one first game, and then I saw the Nets use it a bunch because um, I am in, I'm in, I live in Brooklyn and I go to Nets games to, to cover the league. I saw the Knicks use it a bunch, uh, both on their road trip, in December, and then when they came back here, I saw a bunch of tweets about the Cavs using it, and all of a sudden, I was like, "This is definitely a thing. This is way more teams using zone than I can remember." Um, and I wound up getting a bunch of research on it in you know late December or so, uh, and at that point in the season, teams had already played almost the same number of possessions of zone defense this year as they had last year. Um, we were barely you know a third or a quarter or a third of the way through the season. Um, so I just did a bunch of reporting on it over the next couple of months. And by the time the piece went up, teams had played more possessions of zone defense this year than during the last two years combined. So it worked out pretty well for me in terms of the timing.
1: It did. And the piece goes through some of the different motivations for it. I, I like Derek Jones talking about how talking is a requirement in a zone defense. You know, you have to, because the circumstances change and the responsibilities do, you have to be, if it forces players to kind of be in a different frame of mind. And sometimes even that change of pace can be very useful.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, that was um, basically why uh, why David Fisdale said he went to it was because basically their man defense just I mean, the Knicks defense has been terrible the whole year. And he was like, I just needed to change something. Um, and it kind of worked for them. You know, their, their zone defense is still pretty bad, but it's been better than the man. And I think it helped them, especially, um, you know, Mitchell Robinson was kind of all over the place early in the season. And he actually wasn't playing yet when they debuted their zone at first, but when he came back and they used it a little bit, I think it helped him sort of figure out more of what his help responsibilities are. And he was in the right position more often. And granted he's still chasing every possible block, but now he's closer to them and he's less out of position um, and doesn't have to go as far, exert as much energy, even though he can cover all that ground anyway. So it's, you know, you mentioned the different motivations, like the, the Knicks are doing it because their man defense stinks same reason with you know the Cavs and even the Spurs, but you know the, the Heat did it at first to get themselves talking. Uh, but since then, it just kind of works for them. Um, the, the Nets are doing it because Kenny Atkinson has always wanted to do it, and he finally found a team that he thinks can execute it. And they do it to, th- to throw offenses off. They do it to leave guys unblocked. They basically use. Jared Allen in a one man zone a lot of the time, even apart from their, you know, full team zone. Um, and then the Raptors who have been the best zone team this year. I mean, Nick Nurse will do it for tactical reasons. And, um, I think, I just think it's really fascinating because one of the things that you've heard about the NBA for so long is teams don't play zone. Teams hate playing zone. Coaches hate playing zone. You can get shot out of your zone so easily. Um, and it's, it's sort of viewed as like a, I don't know if it's the right word, but, like, a less manly defense than man-to-man. Like, you always hear zone is for cowards and that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think what I learned through watching teams play it is nobody knows how to attack it right now. Very few teams are doing well offensively against zone defenses. And um, I'd rather be a coward that gets stops than a manly man that doesn't. So.
1: It was was it Popovich that kind of talked about that, about how how nobody really knows how to how to go at it now? It's, it's one of those things that once it falls so far out of fashion, then teams just don't really have schemes in place to figure it out.
2: Yeah, uh, it was Popovich, and he was not the only one. I mean, I just used that one quote because it was the best of those variety of quotes. But essentially, every player and coach that I talked to said the same thing, um, except for Mike Budenholzer. Who said that we just run our regular offense and do a lot of the same stuff we do against man? And um, they've been one of the better offensive teams against zones. So good for him. Um, everybody else, though, like all the guys in the Heat, they were like, "Yeah, nobody knows what to do against us." James Johnson gave me like a bunch of a bunch of you know great stuff to that effect. I wound up using um, you know something else from him, talking about you know the, the the way coaches at first react and what the first reaction was to to when they played it but i mean the the pop quote is probably like the best quote i've gotten from him out of any of the questions that i've ever asked and um you know obviously i've been covering the, the league and games for a while now but it took me a few years to gear myself up to to, to ask pop a question but uh since then I, I i tend to do pretty well with him and uh that was that was the best for sure and uh, it came one night after he basically blew me off asking the same question i got very lucky that they uh they played the Knicks and nets back to back and i uh i figured out a way to ask the question a different way and he was receptive to it
1: Incidentally, the the best conversation that I've ever had with somebody in the NBA about a zone defense is with one of Popovich's former players, Manu Ginobili. And so years and years ago, I think this was in 2010, the Warriors, I think it was under Keith Smart, went to a kind of a junk zone defense. It was one of those, nothing is working, so we might as well try it more in line with what Fizdale did with the Knicks. And so I talked with Manu, I just walked up to him, and I was like, what do, you, what do you do when a team goes to a zone? And so we started talking about how, you know, you you find the seam, you just try to exploit it, and you and you and in that time, and this is one of the important differences between then and now, is that basically his idea was that a team was running scared if that's what they went to. This kind of goes in line with the mailingness thing, but it also kind of doesn't. It's just that was the reality. Like basically nobody used his own, so you're using his own when nothing else works. And so his idea was freak them out enough that they're gonna go away from it. And because because you can. And it it's interesting because now teams aren't necessarily going at it from a position of of weakness. They can be going at it because it can th- – as more of a, a proactive thing rather than a reactive thing.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think that's a lot of the difference between, you know, the switching defenses of six or seven years ago when, you know, the, one of the big criticisms when Mike Woodson was coaching the Knicks back in the day was that they sort of – was that they switched every screen. and People were like, this is nonsense. It doesn't work and then a few years later obviously the warriors started switching every screen and it was incredible and people were like this is such an innovative defense the difference is what you just mentioned you know it's the difference between passive switching uh, as a reaction and you know aggressive switching as a proactive strategy to throw teams off it's the same thing with the zone if you're in a if you're in a passive zone cuz you just don't think you can get stops and you're trying to figure something out that's the kind of zone that's not necessarily going to work very well. And the teams that have gone to the zone for that reason, even though their zones have been somewhat better than their man-to-man defenses, the zones have still been bad. But the teams that are going to it as a proactive tactic because they want to throw teams off in some way and they think that they know you know, what they can do. You know, The Raptors, they put Pascal Siakam at the top of the key and he spreads his wings, covers like half the court by himself – they got really smart and active defenders, you know, on the on the wings and at the bottom. They do really well with it. The Celtics, even when they've gone to their zone, they haven't used it quite as much as other teams. But they got, they have all this length, and it bothers teams. Same with the Nets; their, their length, I think, is the big thing that bothers teams. And they have Jared Allen, who you know has sort of perfected the dance of you know what they call two point nining, you know, staying in the lane for as close to three seconds as possible, and then without getting called for a three-second violation, darting out of the key, jumping back in and restarting the process. He does that in a bunch of different directions, and it helps them cut off drives. And, uh, you know, these teams, they, they don't know what to do against it when you're using it as a proactive tactic as opposed to a reactive tactic. And I think that that's a big key for for why it's working for teams now, as opposed to, you know, what you mentioned, Manu said, teams were essentially, you know, running scared and admitting they couldn't get stops and just trying something else.
1: Something that I find really fascinating with where this might be going ties in with what you said about the Raptors, which is, and I'll draw an analogy to college football because college football is, broadly speaking, more experimental than the NFL, is that a lot of times, especially in the early days of something that's avant-garde, you see teams that are less talented do it. And there's this, you brought up the kind of the mainliness angle on this, is that a lot of times the teams that have the best personnel for a zone are teams that can play man-to-man, and so thus going at it from a position of strength, not only do they have superior personnel, but then they're doing it as a change of pace from something that already works, and it's going to be fascinating to see how those teams, the ones that have a lot of defensive talent, the Raptors, the Celtics, you know, theoretically if the Warriors ever wanted to go down that road, how those teams do it because... They'll also be generally speaking teams with a lot of defensive talent are going to be playing in the playoffs. And that's another circumstance where it can be a really interesting test case because you're ramping up typically opponent aggregate quality, you know, just because the better teams make the playoffs and all that kind of stuff. So where it goes, especially because we've had some successful teams use it to successful ends so far, I'm I'm really, really interested in that part of this.
2: Yeah, me too. I mean Popovich said that he thinks that because teams get so thrown off by it, and this is the quote we were talking about earlier, that he thinks it's gonna become, you know, a bigger and bigger weapon, you know, maybe in a, maybe even in the playoffs was that that part was sort of implied, He didn't say it outright. But um, you know, the the two things for me that you mentioned there are very interesting, you know, with the Raptors specifically, um being willing to experiment even within your zone. You know, teams experiment within their their men and their, you know, their regular defenses. All the time, you know, they might have guys drop in pick and roll coverage. They might have a meet the ball handler at the level of the screen. They might switch. They might blitz. You can do variations on your zone, too. The, the Heat have done this a little bit. They've, they have a 2-3 and a 3-2. The Celtics have done it a little bit. They've got like a, you know, a 1-3-1 one, one variation that they'll use on out-of-bounds plays sometimes. Um, you know, Toronto for basically the whole season – when they had their zone, they had been using a three two but the night that I talked to Nick Nurse was actually the first game after the Mark Gasol trade, and he talked about how he wanted to experiment with a two three because he thought that you, that having Gasol could give them you know a little bit of a different look even within their zone. So I think that that's going to be important to the you know potential success of zone defenses also is just having variations on it, just like you do with your regular man to man or switch or whatever you want to call it defenses. And then the second thing, I mean, this is something that I talked about uh, that, that, that didn't make it into the piece. But with Ed Davis, you know, you mentioned the, the success in the playoffs potentially, you know, because of team quality. But more than that, I think it's, you know, game planning for just one team at a time. If a team like the Bucks is playing the Heat in the first round, they know they're going to see a lot of zone um you know they already had two different games against the heat zone this year the first one it completely shut them down granted they were on the second night of a back-to-back and with a bad travel schedule but the second time they played them they destroyed it throughout the entire game um, you know if you're going against them for a seven game series you know you're going to see a bunch of it you can game plan stuff and it's not like you know you spent the entire previous game playing the warriors and they're switching everything or you're playing the jazz and they're dropping on every pick and roll. And now all of a sudden you see the heat playing zone for nine minutes. Um, If you're playing the heat or you're playing the nets, or you're playing any of these teams that use extensive zones, you know that it's coming and you can prepare better for it because you're game planning for one team and one team only. So I think it'll be fascinating to see how it works on that level too.
1: Agreed. Yeah, that's a a really great point. Plenty more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from betonline.ag. March has arrived and the action continues to roll on with huge games across the NBA with playoff implications. And of course, the conference tournaments in college basketball and March Madness looming. There is only one place that has all the early lines and all the action you want betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account and use the promo code podcast1 to tell them that you came from us and receive a 50% sign up bonus so much going on i mean not only nba college basketball conference tournaments but also the nhl if you're into that if you're into mma you can check that out on betonline as well and you can try in-game live betting if you think you know you get a read during the course of it maybe you don't know how a game's going to start but you think you know how it's going to finish you can check that out as well and if you do use that promo code podcast1 for a 50% sign up bonus betonline.ag your online sportsbook experts. Let's move on a little bit more broadly to the rest of the league. I think this is this is such a, a, a strange time. I actually talked about this with, with our mutual friend Matt Moore a couple weeks ago about how this is a weird time to evaluate teams. I mean, you can get into that like Orlando basically beating the good teams and losing to the bad teams on their schedule is a pretty good example of this. But we we are a month out from the playoffs, and I was just Kind of a, a more a general sense of where you see the like the top end of the league going. Like it, I, I still think the Warriors are a cut above everybody else as a playoff team. Even though it sh- must be said as many times as we have to say it, that Milwaukee has been the best team in the league this season.
2: Yeah, I think as recently as like a week and a half ago, I thought everybody was way too low on the Bucks. Um, their defense has scuffled a little bit over the past few weeks, which is interesting because. Their offense was the the unit that was scuffling like right before the All Star break. I still think they're very very good, and you know every um, you know point differential based sort of metric paints them as um, you know one of like the thirty best teams ever. Um, so I do think they're still a little bit underrated, but I'm not quite as high as I was on them even like ten days ago, even though they're some like four and one. In that time, I just think that if the defense isn't best in the league and it's, you know, top five or six, that that takes them down a little bit of a level from where they were, you know, heading into the break. But, you know, the, the, the top four teams, obviously, in the East, you know, whether you want to include the Pacers in there or not, I don't necessarily know if they're. One of the top four now, because, you know, everybody's talked about how they've maintained their positioning with Victor Oladipo out, but they're only like a game or two over 500 during that time. And granted, that's very good to be able to do that without your best player. But that's also not, you know, if you're a game or two over 500, you're not a top four team in in that conference without him. So... I mean, the, the top four, I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if any of them came out of the East. I do think that the Bucks and the Raptors are sort of a, a level better than the, the Celtics and Sixers. But the Celtics and Sixers might have even higher ceilings. So who knows? In the West, I mean, I'm definitely with you. The Warriors are sort of a cut above everybody else. And I mean, for me, it's, it's largely going to be based on matchups. I have you know a friend who argues with me all the time that it's definitely Houston, against them in the Western Conference Finals, but, you know, first of all, Houston might play them in the second round. We don't know if they're going to be the two, three, or four, um, you know, and if Oklahoma City sees, like, San Antonio, I like their chances a lot better than if they see Utah, even though I do like them against Utah, too. Um, it's, it's all going to depend on who plays who and where and when, um, but I don't, I don't see anybody necessarily as a clear second-best threat to the Warriors. I think, There are a few teams that could give them a series, but none of them stand out to me as necessarily being definitively better than the others in terms of that, you know, Denver, Oklahoma City, Houston, maybe Portland group.
1: On a similar line to what you talked about in the West, my feel as of right now on the bottom of the East is that like, I I mean granted detroit's gotten their butts kicked in their last two games but like they had been playing really well over the last you know let's say six weeks but them and brooklyn to me it's not so much that who they play is going to affect who i pick in that series but i think it could affect how comfortable i am with how many games it's going to go you know like i i don't have yet a firm one of the weird things is just i don't have a firm feel for these top of these teams partially because they've all had a lot of turnover and partially just because they can be inconsistent you know so, so you get into all that kind of stuff but like i I don't I don't foresee a circumstance other than maybe the Pacers but I sincerely doubt that where I'm picking against those top four in the first round but as you said picking who's going to make it out is an entirely different thing
2: yeah absolutely and I mean I think with you know with Brooklyn and Detroit I think it'll affect more what happens in the second round than in the first like I don't think I would necessarily pick them to beat Boston or Toronto or Philly or whichever of the team you know those, those guys plays but if you have um, you know a very tough excuse me a very tough series against Brooklyn in round 1 as opposed to let's say you know somebody beats Detroit 4-1 or 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 even the other way around i think that's going to affect you i think we saw it you know last year where where teams you just get a little bit more beat up um in, in certain series than you do in others And those teams are respectable. I don't know necessarily that they're, you know, of the quality as the top of the East teams. So to me, it's more about being able to get through those unscathed than it is about necessarily being in danger of losing.
1: That is particularly important when we're talking about the team, a team that wants to make it out of the East because they're theoretically going to play, you know, at least two tough series and their hope is to not make it three in the Eastern Conference and then still have enough left in the the gas tank to compete in the NBA Finals, and that's a lot to take on. I mean, we've seen that in various iterations over the last few years of just like, you know, those seven-game series, and also remember that a lot of the teams at the top of the East can play very physical series you know there are a lot of talented bigs in those series a lot of a lot of aggressive defenders I mean you have like Marcus Smart and Joel Embiid and all of the things the Bucks do to try to stop shots at the rim and so making it through that ringer and now there is a chance and I would say I would expect this that the team that makes it out will be playing really well And that's extremely important, but they're also going to have just been through some absolute battles.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of it, um, you know, you may see a bunch of different styles of play depending on the matchups that you see, you know, a a Milwaukee Philly series is going to look so much different than a Milwaukee Boston series, for example. Um, just because of the presence of Joel Embiid, um, you're going to see, I think a lot more of Brook Lopez in that series than you might if they're playing the Celtics and Al Horford is just lining up 10 open pick-and-pop three-pointers every game. Um, it's A lot of it is going to depend on what style of play that you have to play um, and, uh, and, and who you see when. I mean, I would rather play the Celtics before the Sixers than the other way around just because I'd rather come in a little bit less physically damaged, and I think you're more likely to have that Playing Boston than Philly, um, but you know you got you got to beat everybody to get where you want to go. Anyway,
1: right? And part of why I was so excited by what happened at the trade deadline is that a couple of these teams, for me, most notably the Bucks with Miritich, and even though they haven't played Miritich with Giannis a lot, I think that's part of a potential endgame for them is that these teams have more flexibility, more optionality. And so if like let's say if, if Brook Lopez, you know, he would be troublesome in a Celtics series. I think I think Brook Lopez's like unplayability in the in the playoffs is is overstated, but there are certain matchups where that becomes a big problem. You know, if you're going to try to run a drop coverage against the Celtics, they don't care because they're not getting to the line and they're not always getting to the basket anyway. You know, it's it's sort of a parallel to Teams that have had great rim protectors going against the Warriors, where that player is providing less value because you're not taking away something that the other team wants, and so that you know, so the Boston's ability to attack that means that Milwaukee needs a counter, and that's kind of the same thing with what Toronto did by getting Marc Gasol, who I think is a wonderful defender for Joel Embiid in particular. And then Philly, I mean, we don't know what the heck they are. They've only played 80 minutes. I think it's something 80 or 82 with their five best guys on the floor. And 20 of those minutes were against the Knicks.
2: Yeah, and I don't count anything against the Knicks as like being real. Um, but I mean, you, you mentioned the, the drop coverage and things like that. I mean, we see that with the Warriors, especially against the Jazz. Rudy Gobert is not necessarily as impactful against Golden State as he is against 28 other teams. We see it with the Sixers against the Celtics. Um, you know, it's the same sort of thing where Al Horford sort of gives Joel Embiid kind of fits offensively, and t- they had to switch Embiid off of Horford last year and have him guard Marcus Morris in the playoffs. That was a real thing. Um, you don't want to have to do that. And, you know, the, the thing that enthused, enthused me, encouraged me, I don't know what word I'm looking for there, but uh, about the, the Bucks' moves to the deadline, like you said, like I thought that getting Miritich was really good for them. I, I, you saw what he could do when he sort of ramps up the intensity and the pressure on defense and in rebounding last year in that first-round series against Portland. Um, the size that he has and the length that he has can really bother smaller guards coming around screens. I I think that that could be really valuable. We haven't seen a ton of it yet, just because that's not really what Milwaukee does. You know, maybe they, when they get into a, like we mentioned earlier, like where you just game plan specifically for certain teams, maybe they'll do something like that. It wasn't necessarily something New Orleans did a ton of during the last regular season either. And then all of a sudden they were just, you know, everywhere and destroying Dame and CJ coming around every screen. Maybe the Bucs will do something similar. The thing I have not been encouraged by is that, you know, they have Miritich and they have Lopez and they have Giannis as sort of their three core front court guys. But instead of having this is a big thing for me, like I think that the emergence of DJ Wilson was so important for them during the earlier part of the season, he gives them a much different look defensively than any of their other big guys does. He covers so much space all over the floor. He can protect the rim. He can guard in space. I think I just think he's a really valuable player within the context of that team, and he's basically the one guy now who is completely out of their rotation. They're even playing, you know, Paul Gasol over him, who they basically just acquired, and, like, I don't particularly know why, and um, they're, they're doing things like playing... Miritich and Ilyasova together sometimes, which I don't necessarily like. Um, I just would rather see Wilson getting the Ilyasova and Lope, uh, not Lopez, Gasol minutes. And um, I'm not worried about it. I still think the Bucks are really good. But I do think that some of that, you know, you can read into their defensive drop-off with them not playing one of their better front court defenders and instead playing two guys who don't provide much of anything defensively and certainly don't provide the different kind of look that Wilson gave them.
1: It also speaks to something that has made me a little bit queasy about the Bucks as a playoff team this whole year, which is that Mike Budenholzer does not have a great history as a playoff coach. And there, it's easy to point to in that series against the Wizards that he was some, he wasn't always willing to like go with his best guys. Now the Cleveland series they had a bunch of guys that were hurt and all that kind of stuff that's a little bit different but play, sure, and also
2: they were already in the Eastern Conference Finals at that fair time point. Like, you gotta win two series to get there
1: right but like for me the, the, the series against the Wizards was a little bit concerning and Milwaukee with that flexibility with that optionality that opens up a lot of positives but it also opens up playing the wrong guys and Ersan Ilyasova in particular you know remember you know when when Mike Budenholzer was Mike Budenholzer as both the GM and head personnel guy for a portion of the time with the Atlanta Hawks you know he he kind of got to pick his groceries and then use them and it feels to me like getting Ersan Yusova was a part of that and you know that he you know he doesn't have control i don't know exactly how much of the picture how, how much horse listens to him and all that kind of stuff but you know they the biggest expenditure they had in the offseason was Ersan Yusova And he is an inferior player to me in most facets than Nikola Mirotic. Now, an inferior player doesn't mean, you know, don't play Ilyasova at all. But as you said, if the choice is between DJ Wilson and what he brings now, there are some games when DJ Wilson's not going to be ready, he's not going to be good, and you could go that. But if you basically treat it as Ilyasova is definitely a part of the rotation and some of these other guys might not be, I think that could be a challenge for them.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't necessarily see the rationale for playing Ilyasova, if you have Miritich, who's better at I don't know. I guess I would say everything,
1: um, other than taking charges, <laughs> which I'm not sure counts yeah. as a thing. Sure, um, you know he is elite
2: at taking charges. There was a Twitter thread a few weeks ago that basically showed like he's as good at taking charges as Steph is at shooting threes. Which obviously you would rather be that good at shooting threes than taking charges, but he apparently is that that good at it. Um, I just it doesn't make all that much sense to me specifically playing to get playing them together uh, him and Miritich, doesn't make all that sense to me all that much sense to me but you know there, there's still time obviously to to figure things out there's still time obviously for teams to experiment with stuff this was sort of a piece that i wrote about a few weeks ago where you know i said one of the things that the bucks should experiment with you know this is a lineup that has seen 2 minutes all season is Bledsoe, Brogdon, Middleton, Giannis, and Wilson. Um, I think that specifically if they make the finals and play the Warriors, that's going to be a lineup that they need because you got to play against the death lineup. And Lopez, as much as I think he's been very good this season, is not going to be able to play against the death lineup, I don't think. And I think uh, you know we saw Miritich last season struggle against it, and if he struggles against it, Ilyasova can't play against it, and Pau Gasol definitely can't play against it. So, you know, this is another reason. I don't, I, this is not to say that D.J. Wilson is the key to the Bucks or they're going to lose because they don't play G, D.J. Wilson. I just think he could be situationally useful for them, and, it, and I don't think he should be excised from the rotation entirely because I think that you could potentially need him at some point.
1: Speaking of situationally useful, something that I've been tracking not only due to geographic proximity but because they're the championship favorites is how the Warriors are using DeMarcus Cousins. We are about 12 hours removed from... What I would say was Cousins' best game as a warrior. But what was striking to me about that game was that Cousins succeeded, but not necessarily in ways that were particularly predictive of a seven game series against the Rockets. It's not like he was a defensive beast, you know, that the Rockets weren't going after him all the time or anything like that. It's that he was able to be successful kind of in spite of or or like around that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I kind of early on when he first came back, maybe three or four games in, I did, um, I focused on him for, for last night in basketball about how they were integrating him into the offense. And at that time, he was still playing not, that ver- not very many minutes. So teams were not keying up on him with their offense against his defense quite as much as they had been over the past few weeks. Obviously, that's been, I think, the big concern. And it, it does seem to me like you know we transitioned to this conversation from a guy being situationally useful, and to me that that's really what Cousins is going to wind up being in the playoffs. I don't know if you can play thirty minutes with him defensively the way he's looked on defense over the past I guess month or so, starting from you know a couple weeks after he came back and started playing real minutes. Um, I don't know if that's sustainable for them on defense in the playoffs. So it's going to be a situation where. You give him the ball for five six minutes, and he just bullies through guys and maybe plays against second units um, and can sort of dominate offensively for stretches or against smaller big guys or you know guys that don't defend quite as well in space and you can use his passing ability or things like that rather than a guy who is just there you know thirty to thirty two minute a game center and he's on the court all night i just I can't see that the way he's moving around right now
1: right and I, I think the important part of this from From my perspective, is how Kerr approaches this. Because if Cousins is, you know, situationally useful, that is a very different thing than him being a key part of either the starting or the finishing lineup. Now, Kerr's been very comfortable not using Cousins in the finishing lineup. You know, that that's been the case. And especially because he's starting... The second and fourth quarters in the current rotation that gives Kerr plausible deniability. In Wednesday's game, he, you know, it was funny. There were some Warriors fans were like, "Why did you pull Cousins?" Like because he played eight straight minutes and that's a lot, you know, for a big guy. And so they went to these other lineups and actually, you know, things got a little hairy at the end of that game. But the Warriors, like, I think the most important thing, and I'm going to write on this in the next two weeks, is that the the biggest takeaway for me so far is that while you know, I would say in some ways, Cousins has exceeded my expectations. The most, the the thing that I said when he signed with them on July second or whatever day that was, was that the Warriors' best five man lineup still did not involve DeMarcus Cousins, and nothing that has happened this season has changed that for me.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think we should sort of operate from a base assumption that their best five-man lineup is going to be the death lineup, and if Cousins is part of a five-man lineup, well, that's just a bonus because that means he looks so good and he's moving well enough that you can have him out there, um, presumably instead of Andre Godala, just to give yourself uh, a little bit of a different look or maybe match up with a certain team, but – that's, that's a bonus to me. That's, that's a luxury as opposed to what is going to be what I expect coming into the playoffs.
1: Something I was thinking about the other day, I think it was when I was watching the game when the Blazers ended up eventually beating the Clippers who were playing without Gallo, was how... It is fortunate for Portland that I don't think there's a team that on really in their part of the bracket that is perfectly situated to wreck what they do offensively, kind of like the Pelicans. And the Pelicans had this weird thing where like their specific weakness of like not having a small forward was pretty much immaterial facing Portland because Portland doesn't have anybody who can attack that on either end of the floor. And so like, yeah, there are te- there are teams that are going to give them a lot of trouble. Like that's just, that's just the way it is. But I do think that maybe people are sleeping a little bit on the Blazers as a, as a capable team because they, because they had this just catastrophic failure last year in the playoffs.
2: I somewhat agree with that. Um, I think the team may be best situated to do sort of the similar thing to them that New Orleans did last year. It might be the Thunder, just because they do have size both on the perimeter with, with Russ and Paul George and Terrence Ferguson. And then with their big guys, they have you know the size-speed-length combo with Steven Adams and Jeremy Grant. But A, that's not really the Thunder style in terms of swarming the ball like that um, for the most part. They'll do it sometimes. Um, B, Steven Adams has not been moving around quite as well in the second half of the season as he has throughout the majority of his career. C, Russell Westbrook doesn't necessarily play, you know, he doesn't play Drew Holiday-style defense for 48 minutes on really any night. Uh, You know, he can ramp it up on occasion and certainly I think he's been better this year than at any time in recent memory, but he still, you know, gets lackadaisical and he falls asleep and, he, you know, doesn't exert his full effort a lot of the time. So I don't see the team that can just do to Portland what New Orleans did last year necessarily. Um and that's good. And certainly I think we would think of them differently if that series had been Four two or even four one than the the sweep and the you know total destruction that it was. And I'd also think we think of them much differently if they played like Utah in the first round as opposed to New Orleans. Um, the matchups mean everything when you get into that kind of a thing
1: they really do. And I mean, I would have really enjoyed. It doesn't seem like we're going to see it a Denver. Portland series. I guess it could theoretically happen as the three six. I guess that would be the most likely way. Just intellectually, just how those two teams would square up, and and what Portland is trying to do defensively beyond the whole like Nurkic Jokic you know dynamic with with what happened a couple of years ago and Mason Plumlee facing his former team and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we're too far away to really know the matchup stuff, and some of that is also just because these teams are so close. Now, I, I think I think de- I'm I, maybe I'm more confident in Denver ending up with the two seed than some, just because they. They have this four game margin now and that that's a lot you know they can they can have a couple of missteps and probably still be okay it's not like houston has just like a ton of like their schedule is just all patsies the rest of the season and they're gonna go you know like two losses or something the rest of the way like i don't think that yeah as well as they played for long stretches, of this i don't think that's gonna happen so yeah then- i mean just
2: quickly on that i mean four games doesn't seem like a massive lead in the context of the full season With 15 games left, it's almost insurmountable.
1: It's huge. And and because you also think about, like, yeah, okay, you know, that's only a a couple bounces, but it's a couple of bounces in a a pretty significant proportion of the number of games remaining when you consider that they're also, like, games that the team is almost definitely going to win. Like, you know, Denver plays the Knicks. They play the Mavericks who aren't really pushing too hard right now. They play, and, and granted, the Wizards are still trying, but they play the Wizards twice. So, if you start to narrow the field by the games that are pretty well settled then it becomes how well do you perform in the you know still still to be competed ones and then that's when the numbers start to get really daunting for the Rockets or theoretically I mean the Thunder could get there if they play really well too but again for both those like they basically need to run the table or close to it and that's a lot to ask for anybody much less a team with a strong schedule remaining like the Thunder have
2: sure and I mean just Look at it as a math problem. I don't know the exact number of games each team has remaining, but if we assume, you know, at or around 15, I mean, let's say Denver goes eight and seven over the rest of the season, and and that's already assuming a lot considering how good they've been. Well, now you have to go 12 and three in your 15 games at a minimum, and that's just to tie them. You probably got to go 13 and two to pass them if you don't have the tiebreaker. That's – like that's ridiculous. Th- Thirteen and two. That's like a seventy-something win pace for the whole season. Uh, you're just you're probably not going to do that. It's just it's really tough to make up that much ground in this short a span of time.
1: It is notable, though, I'm just looking at Houston's schedule, they don't have that many games against really good teams. They have a lot of games against teams that are still trying, you know, like San Antonio and Sacramento twice and the Clippers, but those, like, you know, games against top five teams in either conference, off from what I can tell, it's at Milwaukee, and then two days later, they host Denver. And those are really the last two games left. Oh, and and OKC. Yeah. And at OKC in the last game of the season. But there's a a distinct chance that OKC isn't, you know, we don't know where they're going to be at that point, though it seems likely that they're going to be fighting for something because of how close this is. But the thing is, let's say, let's say, you know, Houston does OK in those games. You still basically have to run the table and everything else and hope that Denver struggles. So I want to jump a little bit to the to the bottom of the East. This is a question that I've just been interested in, mostly because all of these teams frustrate me so much. So you have four teams that are really competing. We'll include the Wizards. They'll be charitable. They just, they just won last night. Well, you probably won't include them in your answer. So what I want to say, is so you have Orlando, Miami, Washington, and Charlotte. Which of those teams do you trust the most, and which of those teams would you most want to see in a seven-game series against the Milwaukee Bucks?
2: um you know in terms of my personal enjoyment level
1: you mean for the second question yes
2: okay um I think my answer is probably the same for both um it's probably Miami for both but I don't really I wouldn't even say that I trust them necessarily um it's more like I trust Spo the most out of the four coaches they've got a two-game lead over the nine seed I, I think that they're probably the least likely to mess up On any given night, even though that's not necessarily a a huge trait for them. Um, And then just I I would like to see Milwaukee get tested against the the length and the zone that Miami plays, um, I don't think it would be necessarily all that competitive of a series, but tactically, I think it would show us, you know, a lot of what the Bucks are thinking about offensively.
1: I would enjoy a Charlotte series as well, because just to see how they handle a point guard like him, because presumably Milwaukee's going to have to do that at another point in the playoffs too. But the problem with the, the Hornets is that I just don't think they have the horses. You know, I, I don't, that series would be one of those like kind of interesting five game series or four game series. Series, you know, like one of those type of things, where Miami, that's a real stress test. Even if that series ends up being short, it's just going to be a pain the entire time. And for me, evaluating Milwaukee, that's the more interesting question.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, c- certainly it's interesting, and I would love to see Kemba, you know, go off for 40 or something in a playoff game and try to steal one by himself against the Bucks. But, and And, you know, you did mention, like, how do you deal with these smaller jitterbug scoring-type point guards, which you're going to see if you play Boston, you're going to see if you play Toronto— um, so it's, it's fascinating from that perspective. I just don't think that the rest of Charlotte's team really provides much of a challenge or a test or, you know, tells us much of anything about the Bucks. And, um, I'd rather see them try to figure out a team rather than figure out like, how can we withstand the Kemba onslaught while, you know, beating them in some other way.
1: One thing that amuses me, Miami is the only team in the NBA that actually gets a negative adjustment on 538's Carmelo model for adjusting. I'm guessing that that's a combination of rotation and a couple other things. And that, that's pretty amazing. But that's also a testament to, A, how good of a coach Spo is, but also just how deep this team is.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they have a lot of... I wouldn't say they have a lot of good players, but they have a lot of interesting players that you can use in a lot of different ways. And um, they, they have sort of a shape-shifty kind of defense, even when they're not in their zone. And it sort of depends who's on the court based on, you know, what kind of defense you're going to see, which I think is interesting too. Um, they're an interesting team. They're not necessarily all that good of a team. And uh, their books are, even without Tyler Johnson, kind of a mess over the next few years. They're paying Kelly Olynyk and Dion Waiters a gazillion dollars or somewhere around there. Um, So I'm not too enthused about their future, even with one of the handful of best coaches in the league. But um, that may be just because, you know, hopelessly biased against Pat Riley.
1: (laughs) It might be. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that we'll just have to see and I mean that's one of my big hopes for the next month is that Goran Dragic can play more I mean he's had some really nice stretches since he came back from from this knee issue but it just needs to be more often because Miami's offense just doesn't have that much verve that much dynamism right now and Dragic is a guy who can bring that but yeah I mean this season for Miami it's just it's it's really about how they define success now if making the playoffs is is enough for them and really they're in this two-year holding pattern whether they like it or not, you know, not only do you brought up Waiters and Olenek, but James Johnson, Hassan Whiteside, Goran Dragic, you know, they have all these other guys. And maybe they, I mean, it's funny how Miami, for reasons that make all the sense in the world, gets a lot of credence for the idea of like, oh, you know, they could clear their books in 2020 and do something. However, it is worth noting you and I are both salary cap nerds. We both, you know, cut our ah, cut our teeth is a little strong. We both have experience with mid-level exceptional back in the day but there aren't that many good players in 2020 so like this idea of miami being a looming giant yeah it's true in theory except that there just aren't good basketball players that are available that year
2: yeah and um so one of the things i was listening to um to Simmons's podcast the other day, and he brought up the idea of them spinning off one of their bad contracts uh, for J.R. Smith, waiving him, clearing cap space that way, and figuring out a way to get actual cap space this summer. Um, but the problem there was he suggested that they throw in an asset to do it, and you know their assets are essentially Bam Adebayo and nothing because they've traded away all of these future first round picks. You know, their twenty twenty one pick is still out there, which I believe went uh to the Clippers at the deadline in the Tobias Harris deal. Um their their twenty nineteen pick, I believe, has been traded too, or was it twenty eighteen? I don't remember which which one it was, but you know, they they've traded a bunch of their picks. I don't think they can trade their twenty twenty pick because they've already traded twenty twenty one. So so um, what
1: they can do is they can trade their twenty nineteen pick? But they can't put any protections on it. So like they Uh. could either, they could trade it like on draft night or something. And, and one of the, one of the big problems for them is this idea, and, and I, I try to focus on this because it's something that you can lose for the weeds, is, is the issue of timing. So if Miami wants to clear space for somebody, like let's say theoretically there's a player who we're surprised by expresses interest in Miami. Now, my instinct is always that that's going to be like a guard, somebody who can really create some offense for them. Now it's not going to be Eric Butzo because Eric Butzo signed with Milwaukee. But let's, I mean, remember they went after Kyle Lowry years ago, all those sorts of things. The problem with that is they either need to make that deal on draft night so that team can pick the guy they want, but then that requires a trade partner. You know, I guess it would be Cleveland, that in the J.R. Smith hypothetical, but it could be somebody else that already knows that their cap space is not going to be viable, which is extremely unlikely. Or that requires that team, you know, and and also that requires Miami basically having that lined up because otherwise that's a gigantic sacrifice to make when you're not getting anything for it because Miami's pick, you know, it's going to be somewhere in the like 15 range and that's if they make the playoffs. Yeah, it's going to be in the teens because if they miss the playoffs, that's true. There'll be they'll fall behind a couple teams sack and, and maybe a few others. And so you don't make that sacrifice if you don't know the guy's coming. And once you know the guy's coming, then you've already driven the car off the lot. You've already picked that player. So it can still happen. I mean, Jeremy Lamb was... A prominent piece in the James Harden trade, and he had already been chosen, but that that timing was obviously different. It can happen, but it is a lot easier to do it the other way. But it's just hard as a practical matter to ever make those deals happen. Sure. and
2: I think it's also hard just when you don't have all that many other enticing pieces to send with it. You know, this is one of the things that that comes up with. Uh, you know, for example, the Nixon and Anthony Davis chase where you know the, the one that comes up obviously the most often is Zion Williamson if they get the number one pick. But even if they were to get two or three or four, well, first of all, that's a, a very good pick, and whoever they get there is likely to be a very good player. But they also have a bunch of other stuff they can throw in in terms of future picks and guys that they've picked in recent years. Miami doesn't have a lot of that. It's going to have to be this pick and a contract, and that's just not a lot to throw in. It's just not that enticing uh, when you're talking about making that kind of a move.
1: Especially when you consider the practical sacrifice that it would be for a, a team to give up that space ahead of time. I mean, they would have to basically say, OK, you're, you're basically you'd have to sell high on that on that space. That, that's the only way that you could do it. And and it's hard to sell high when you don't have much to sell. So something else I, I think is is interesting around the league right now, and this is just kind of a a loose point of discussion, is that I I know that people are encouraged that the bottom teams in in the league are competing this year, and some people are saying that's due to lottery reform. I actually think it's a little bit more complicated than that, and it's a more basic thing, which is that the bottom teams were so bad that they had the room to run and they had and they weren't so good that they were going to get into anything so i'm not i'm not all the way there yet in terms of saying like lottery reform is what's the reason the hawks and bulls and to a lesser extent the cavs and suns are playing better recently i think it's more just that they have they have that margin and so thus even with reduced incentives or disincentives actually more accurately in this case they just it, it, it's not really costing them anything.
2: Yeah, I would say that the Hawks are playing better because they have Trey Young and Kevin Herter and John Collins. And I would say even if the, the Suns and the Cavs are playing better, like have you seen these teams' records? The Suns are 16-53. and 53. They're terrible. The Cavs are 17-51. and 51. They're really bad. The Bulls are 19-50. and 50. The Knicks are 13-55. and 55. Like maybe these teams are playing better. They still stink. They're horrible. They're not that much better than any of the teams that were at the bottom of the league last year.
1: That's true, and also I- I'm happy you brought up the point with Atlanta. It's also true with Chicago that the players they have on their team right now are better than the players they had on their team at the start of the season. Chicago had to deal with a bunch of injuries they also got out of Porter and then Atlanta didn't have anybody in John Collins' spot and then got in John Collins, who's been a, a positive player obviously for them and and, and so also, young
2: is playing way like, better, you know yeah, like he was terrible at the beginning of the year and now he looks really good or certainly for stretches of games or full stretch or full games. He looks really good. He's still had a couple of games where he, he's looked quite bad, but that'll happen when you're like that small and a rookie, like that kind of stuff happens.
1: It, it, it really does. And I think the last, the last thing I want to ask you, I've been doing this a lot on podcasts this year is just, you know, we're, we're a month away from the end of the season, but I want to f- focus more on the next couple of weeks. What are you going to be looking for? Like what teams are you going to be paying most attention to as we kind of, not the final stretch, but you know, the stretch before the final stretch.
2: Yeah, I mean, at this point of the year, I tend to cut out of my watching rotation the teams that are, you know, fully out of it and not really going to have any bearing on the the playoffs or even the playoff race. So, you know, the the teams we were just talking about, New York, Cleveland, Chicago, Phoenix, like, I don't imagine I'm going to be watching any of their games the rest of the way. And certainly other people are, you know, there, there is stuff to watch there that's interesting. You know, I'm going to miss out on a lot of, you know, what DeAndre Ayton looks like or what Mitchell Robinson looks like or what Colin Sexton's development looks like or things like that. But I would just, you know, rather focus on the stuff that's going to matter for the rest of the year because, you know, a lot of my job is going to involve covering the teams that play in, in April and May and June. So for me, it's. I'm going to be watching the the teams at the top of the league play a lot against each other to get a feel for what those matchups are going to look like, what teams want to accomplish, what their rotations are going to be, what they do well, what they don't do well. I mean, obviously, you learn a lot of that over the course of the first you know 65, 68 games or so. But I think it gives you an idea over this next you know few weeks stretch what the coaches of those teams think their strengths and weaknesses are, and what they want to accomplish, and what how they want to play, and that I think will inform a lot of what we're going to see them do when they actually get into the playoffs.
1: Along those lines, I'm going to be looking at how, especially the top teams in the East, experiment over this time. You know, like we, we talked about, you know, DJ Wilson being a part of that. And there are a couple other stories. I mean, the Warriors with Cousins is a big one, and what they really do. And and so are they? Are they going to try some of this stuff? Because it's a lot easier to do it without the stakes of the playoffs. You know, teams generally don't. You know, other than necessity being the mother of invention, you don't see a lot of that kind of stuff. Like that's and that, I consider that something fundamentally different. And and the other thing, I don't think I'm necessarily gonna be doing this though I do watch everybody all the way through the close through the closing tape, is how these teams that are out of it but not the worst teams in the league approach the remainder of the season and this gets into some really complicated incentives for for front offices for coaching staffs and and for players of you know so let, let's use Minnesota or the Lakers as an example you know like yeah i'm sure there are fans of those teams that say we're not going to make the playoffs we should try to lose every game the rest of the year or something like that but Carl Anthony Towns doesn't want to do that Ryan Saunders doesn't want to do that Luke Walton doesn't want to do that and and there is a lot of a lot of wiggle room there and you also get a little bit of that disparity because even if it's misguided teams like the Wizards still have a shot of making the playoffs. And so this has come up a couple of times in the past that one of the other benefits that the West has over the East is that teams have a clearer picture of when they're out earlier. And so they don't push as much. And so, like, we could see, you know, New Orleans. I mean, they've already, you know, I don't, I don't, I think it's due to a genuine injury with Drew Holiday. It's a little bit different than with AD that he's missing some time right now. But, you know, maybe. Wait a minute.
2: Anthony Davis isn't genuinely hurt <laughs> or.
1: I mean, he might be ill when he's ill, but he's not playing 20. I mean, so you get into all that. But so we could see, you know, New Orleans and possibly even the Lakers fall past the Wizards, Hornets, the Magic, those types of teams. And then that leads to, especially when you consider the aspirations, I mean, Dallas is another thing here and they are going to have lots of cap space this summer and an interesting team moving forward. You could see those teams get better draft picks, and then that has spillover effects. And remember the lottery reform; like you could see one of those teams ending up jumping up in the lottery.
2: Yeah, and that's the part of the lottery where the odds have really improved. Is like that, you know, seven to eleven or twelve range, where you know you, they used to have. I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers offhand, but they're much better now. Trust me. Go look it up. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and those are the teams that I think are going to benefit from it. You know, you mentioned Dallas. Like, they've gone from, like, I think, if, oh, yeah, they've moved past Memphis now. They have, like, a 40% chance to keep their pick now, which is, or close to it, which is a significant chance. You know, there's still a better than even chance that they're not going to keep it. But, I mean, what if they jump into the top two or three and suddenly they have, you know, Luka Doncic, Kristaps Porzingis, R.J. Barrett or Zion even. And, you know, they they opened up a max cap spot when they traded Harrison Barnes. All of a sudden, that's a much different team than if they just have Luka and KP in that space.
1: Well, and think about somebody like New Orleans who, yeah, they might not jump into the top four, but getting another high pick changes the way they think about Anthony Davis deals. You know, like, and I, my instinct is that they're going to keep at least intend to keep Drew Holiday for another season, and so what What time frame their next general manager and, and ownership, which is obviously a huge part of this, is looking at is going to be incredibly important, but I think they will see it a little bit differently if they have a strong draft pick, because maybe you go, okay, those two players are going to do it together, and that changes the way that they analyze the picks that are offered in deals, you know, like, like having, maybe, have, maybe having two picks, you know, like having a pick at seven or something like that, and and then having another pick that's offered somewhere in the 5-10 to 10 range has more value, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's only one guy that they really like and they have an opportunity to get that. And so I'm really interested in how, yeah, and obviously the Lakers, you know, because of what they want to do in, in either in trades or in free agency, you know, them getting a good pick is there. And so... I think that the, you know, the lottery reform, you brought it up that this, like the seven to 11, at some point I'll probably do the math on it, but that the, the impact outside of the the dregs, you know, equalizing the dregs got a lot of attention, you know, one, two, and three, having the same lottery odds for the, for the picks it, it, that got a lot of attention, but those odds had to go somewhere and somebody's going to jump in. And I just have the feeling that it's going to drive people crazy.
2: Oh yeah. And look, you know, from new Orleans perspective, The best-case scenario for them, other than winning the lottery themselves, is the Knicks being in the top three or four, which is likely at this point, the Lakers jumping from their spot into the top four, and then Sacramento missing the playoffs but not getting the number one pick and jumping into the top four. All of a sudden, you got the three teams that might get in the Anthony Davis Derby, and they're all inside the top four, and suddenly New Orleans could come out of this draft with You know Zion and someone from the back half of the top ten, or RJ Barrett and someone from the back half of the top ten. Like that's a potentially you know not rebuild skipping, but you had two top ten picks instead of one. That's a lot better.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, and the the gap in time from the end of the regular season to the lottery is going to give us some time to do this. But I mean, there's just so much more variance and volatility in it this year, which I'm kind of excited about, but. Again, like, I worked on this when I wrote the book on the Warriors because they were heavily involved in one of these drafts. Like, there was a reason why the league moved away from more even lottery odds, and it was the Orlando Magic, you know, despite not having particularly bad teams, winning the lottery two years in a row. And I don't think that necessarily is going to happen, but, you know, the league, they do this, like, wild bouncing between extremes, and I'm wondering if that's going to kick in this year.
2: Wait a minute you're telling me that a that a change unilaterally agree, agreed to by the league's owners might have unintended consequences that benefits teams that they were not looking to benefit because I mean that has never in the history of the nBA happened before, except for every single time the owners unilaterally make unilaterally make a change um, that that literally always happens um, and it I guarantee it'll happen at some point in the next few years, yeah. But, I mean, with with the, with the flattened odds. I mean, this is a conversation I was having with one of my friends, who um, who's obviously you know most of the people that I'm friends with from growing up or, or from college or law school even because I'm from New York. The, he's a Knicks fan. And he was telling me that essentially his brother um, would rather get the second spot in the lottery rather than the first spot because he doesn't want to have a 48% chance to get a certain pick under the new system. And I'm like, no, what you don't understand is the system is exactly the same. They just changed the odds. Last year there was like a 37% chance that the worst team would get the fourth pick. It's just, you moved it, you move one back now instead of being where it was before where the furthest you could fall was four. So look at it this way. Instead of saying, There's a 48% chance to get the eighth pick. You say there's a 48% chance you're not picking in the top four. Would you rather only be able to pick fifth or be able to pick fifth or sixth? That's the way you have to look at it as opposed to the percentage chance that you get any one particular pick.
1: That's a good way of putting it, and I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how all this stuff plays out, and and you only get one result, so there will be a lot of inferences and interpretations put into that one, that oh, one bounce all of the balls. Of the,
2: all of the conclusions from the, of the new lottery system coming out of this first thing are going to be so horrible. I'm going to be arguing about math for like hours yeah. after the lottery. It's going to be terrible.
1: It's going to be completely insane. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having
2: me. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks again to Jared for taking the time to come on. You can read him all over the internet. You can follow him on Twitter for his last night in basketball, or you can check that out. It has a Patreon, and you can follow him on Twitter at J A Dubin Five, J A D U B I N, and then the number five. Still have the conversation with Aaron Larsoul about the Lakers, but first a message from our friends at TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you will get a True Cash offer, send in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCar today. True Cash offer not available in all areas. Next up is Aaron Larsoul. He is the co-host and producer of the official Lakers podcast on Podcast One. I recently went on his show with him and Susie Schuster put it on and really enjoyed it. And the Lakers are a big story around the league. And really, where this conversation starts is what has changed since the All Star break, which is when I was on his show, and where this is going. And I just thought it was an interesting, enlightening conversation about how he sees the team, how he sees where this is going, and I hope you enjoyed as well. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I went on your show at the end of the All Star break, and things have changed a, just a little bit for for the Los Angeles Lakers since then, and. I think I'll start this with an open-ended question, which is, what to you is was determinative, was definitive about this stretch that kind of led to it going in the way that neither of us expected.
0: Yeah, I, I think it all kind of uh, goes back to two different things. Um, you know, there were some people who had some issues with with the team building um, approach in the last off season. Um, And I, I thought that approach was working. Okay. It wasn't a traditional LeBron team approach, but I thought it was working. Okay. But, but what that did was it made the Lakers rely on two groups of people. One, the young guys, uh, whether that's Josh Harder, Alonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, and then all of the the free agents that had, had been in, all of the, the vets that were going to be leaned on were all guys that were just coming in for one-year deals outside of LeBron. Uh, and uh, KCP had been here now into his second year. And so that combined with the injuries that the Lakers have suffered kind of throughout the year to a lot of those guys that I just mentioned, I think it has been hard for the Lakers to really determine what type of team they have and who they are. And so it's been difficult, I think, at times when it has gotten tough, uh, in this last little stretch here especially, I think it has been tough for the Lakers to have something to fall back on that, co- that comes when you have repetition with guys. I think that's kind of been missing due to the injuries and due to the roster construction. So I, I think that is the the two-pronged main approach that had the Lakers in a spot that neither you nor I thought they would be.
1: I agree with, with that. And also, like I mean, just at a more basic level, to me, defensively, they've been meaningfully worse than I anticipated. And there are a couple different reasons for that. I think you, you got into that well in your answer. And with a LeBron team, generally, you know, like over the last couple of years, since, you know, since he really pushed it in the regular season late in the Miami time, maybe the early Cleveland stuff too, is you're going to have a very good offense, hopefully, and you're going to have a shaky defense, but you need to put it together. And, you know, offensively, every you see things obviously that are, that are concerning, but like you can kind of make that up as long as they would be less terrible on that end. And considering the Lakers, and I'm not obviously putting all of this on any one player's Or any one coach's standpoint, but it is shocking to see this group of players struggle so much there. When last year, I thought they outperformed relative to their talent level on the defensive end.
0: Yeah, that's. I think I think that's true. But as you mentioned, um, as LeBron ages, and every player has to do that. You have to now. He's now you know played so many minutes and has all this mileage on him, um, and he still looks like the same guy that he's looked the last couple years. You know, the, the injury notwithstanding, but the expectation has to be that he has to, anybody that's played that much and has played that hard, you have to kind of ramp it up and ramp it down. And, and t- he's talked about, you know, activating different modes, but you know, LeBron is not the defensive player. He was a few years ago. He still can be in stretches, you know, time in some of his Miami time. He was probably the best defensive player in the league, but as, as you get older, you can't do that anymore. So, you know, it's as he's had, he's been on not great defenses the last couple of years. Uh, this team started out as better than I expected on defense. I think largely due to uh, JaVale was really good at the beginning of the year. And then he got sick with the shot blocking and such. So I think uh, they've had some trouble and they are a little worse than than I thought defensively. You know, part of that comes with the territory, I think. And then I think it also goes back to. My first answer, which is I think the place where the lack of cohesion and the lack of time together for all of the guys, I think that's probably most found on defense because, you know, trust in the communication and all of that, 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 coach walton talks about all the time you know that, those things if it's not five guys who know what the other four guys are going to be doing at all times i think you're going to see that most on the defense so I, I agree with you that that has been the problem of late
1: one other thing we talked about which i thought was a worthwhile conversation then and and it was more me talking and i'm interested in your answer here we were talking about like kind of how you define success or failure for the season and what i ended up talking about a lot was evaluating the players that they have and it's not a prudent to throw all of that in the how do they fit with LeBron James camp because a a lot of the young guys are you know they're still a ways away and and you you not not a ways away from being useful but a ways away from their best play because that's just the way the NBA works if you're in your early twenties usually prime is like twenty six twenty eight something in that range and so what I wanted to to kind of get your temperature on was. How you're feeling about these young guys? You know, like there. Obviously, we, there's also the the Ingram deep thrombosis thing, which is concerning. But like with Ingram, with Lonzo, Kuzma, Josh Hart, those type of guys, how you're feeling about where they are at this point in their careers, whether it's with or without LeBron James being one of the spokes in the wheel? Let's say.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, we'll start with uh, with Brandon, I, and I think he relates most to uh, to LeBron. Um, it was kind of a struggle at the beginning of the year. Didn't seem like they were fitting together. And I think that's because Brandon was the guy whose role changed most with LeBron coming. And also, to be fair, with Rondo coming. Because Brandon did a lot of his best best work last year as a primary ball handler when Lonzo was out playing point guard. Um, so to see his kind of stock rise and to see him improve uh, as he was right before his injury, he was playing really well. He was in averaging like twenty three, twenty two, twenty three points, six, seven rebounds, and a few assists over his last ten, fifteen games, so I think that was the most encouraging to, thing to see. Uh, you know, hopefully this this injury thing and the, and the blood clot is not a not a thing that's going to be lingering because uh, he was starting to come on. Coos, um, you know, I think Coos, I think his ceiling is probably a an All Star. I think he could be an All Star a time or two, um, but I think it's reliant on the shooting. And he's not shooting the three as well as he did last year. Last year he was he was a pretty good three point shooter, a very pleasant surprise. This year the volume is there, but the the efficiency hasn't been there. But I, I think Kuz will probably become an all star at some point. Uh, he takes it very seriously. He works really hard. Uh, Lonzo, it's been somewhat of a lost season now. Uh, you know, with a, with a major injury now for the second year in a row. So, uh, but I think shutting him down is probably the the right call. Um, so that he can have a full offseason to get better. Last year, he didn't have an offseason at all, basically dealing with a knee injury. So, you know, I think that's been kind of hard to judge on Lonzo. But I also don't think it's a coincidence. We talked about the team defensively. The team has been demonstrably worse defensively since Lonzo Ball went out, and I don't think that's a coincidence. And kind of the same thing with Josh. Josh has been, Josh Hart has been dealing with the tendonitis uh, in his knee, and he hasn't been able to really push off and jump. So his shooting numbers since then have declined because he, I don't think that he has full trust in the knee. You don't know when it's going to hurt. So I think there's kind of less has been learned about Josh and Lonzo. Brandon, I was very optimistic about, especially recently, and and Kuz, I think uh, you know, I, Kuz, I think can fit in any place in any time. These guys are going to get buckets. You know, would like to see the three point numbers improve, but I think to your overall point, that is largely what the end of the year is going to be about: the development of those guys and you know watching them with LeBron and also watching, you know, like Reggie Bullock and um and some of the even the G League guys, Mo Wagner you know, how they shoot the ball because largely shooting the ball is what fits with LeBron we've seen. So I think it is going to be about evaluating the young guys and, uh you know, and even some of the G, G League guys playing hard and the effort, I think, is, will, will translate. But I think it is largely kind of who is going to fit in the picture big puzzle with LeBron or without LeBron.
1: And the Lakers have so much uncertainty in terms of – because they, they can shake up the roster a bunch of different ways, you know, guys that run on one-year deals, and then also they could do a bunch of things, players in concert with another, with each other in trades and all that kind of stuff, that the guys do have a lot to play for. One thing that's concerning with me, with Kuzma and LeBron together, is that, you know, it looks like the most reasonable outcomes are with those two guys. If they're playing together, they're playing the two forward spots. And against certain teams, they'll be totally fine. They're really hard to cover. But you also don't have a player with the two of them unless we're getting into like, you know, the part when LeBron's really ramping up, so that's a different part of the season. Where if the other team has a strong forward offensively that you really you know, you really need somebody zealous to go after them. I worry I worry that they don't really have somebody there that you just throw at it. And especially because what LeBron does best at this point in his career defensively is more of that, you know, free safety type of thing, like cleaning up messes and everything like that. And so and Kuzma's just not, to me, that kind of guy, you know, at least not at this stage in his career. So. It is fair to note that there aren't that many teams with those types of players. You know, there may be like, I don't know, 5 teams with that and one of them is right. is the Lakers because they have LeBron James. So, it's right. it's maybe maybe it's more of a first-world problem, but I wonder if that's something that will linger just because the Lakers want to at some point have to be worried about first-world problems. They're not there yet, but that's the goal. Yeah, I think
0: it's yeah, I think that's that's fair because uh Kyle's better than than he was. Kuz is better than he was last year on defense. But the thing he does best on defense is kind of snaking around screens and and guarding twos, basically. He's he's better guarding down. Um, And I think the Lakers think – It is my educated guess that that Brandon Ingram, um, because of his length um, and because of his lateral movement, I think the Lakers are thinking and hoping, and we've seen some strides of that this year, that he's the guy that can kind of ramp up because of his height uh, and length and put pressure on some of those, you know, bigger forwards, uh, small forwards, bigger forwards that, that you're concerned about Kyle or LeBron having to guard. So, I would, I think the in-house answer to that is Brandon Ingram, um, who has, you know, at times given Kevin Durant real problems and, and, you know, given Kawhi Leonard problems. So those are the kind of kind of guys you're thinking about. I think the in-house answer is probably Brandon Ingram.
1: That's that's reasonable. And Ingram, what's what's so hard for me with him is that he has these moments. I think the Boston game is a really good example of it, of where you see the impact that he can make, and then there are other games where he isn't as present. He isn't, you know, possession by possession, he isn't as dominant, and I personally have more trouble kind of calibrating where those guys are going defensively when they show they have talent. I mean, Ingram's physical tools are are obviously great because he has has the length and I think his instincts are pretty good. And so you're kind of sitting there going, okay, well, well, why is it inconsistent? And so maybe that's, maybe it's motor, maybe it's just that he is still learning the game or whatever. There are a lot of different answers there and which answer it is, is extremely important because that will what's will predict whether it's whether it becomes more consistent moving forward or if that's just a part of the story
0: well i i think it's fair and i think the answer my most reasonable guess to the answer that is what we forget a lot he's 21 you know so i think that kind of comes with the territory with with some some young guys that they're figuring out the nba game and the other thing you mentioned his physical tools but I think that's it's worthwhile in remembering that he's 21 also because he's still maturing physically um, and, and hopefully can put on some some good weight and muscle and, and all of that, which it makes a huge impact, especially. To, I think size and strength is, is more important defensively than offensively. Um, so I think that can make an impact for Brandon, much like when I was talking about earlier, if he is going to be the answer of the guy who can kind of toggle and and cross match defensively and play one or two offensively and even three or four defensively. Um, So I I think the answer to that question is most likely he's 21 years old and still figuring out, you know, where he fits into the game and and what his path is and how he can be most impactful because he's a, he's a very pensive guy. He's a very thoughtful guy. Uh, And I think he, he thinks the game a lot. I think that can occasionally uh, be a problem. I would like him to just kind of act on instinct a little bit more sometimes, but it also is helpful in him trying to determine wh- where and how he best fits and in what lineups and what combination um, and how to use that, that length and athleticism and all that we're talking about. So I, I think we're going to see a different Brandon Ingram going forward as he ages and, uh, I think that's probably the answer to the the, why don't I see this same thing all the time? Why why isn't there the consistency all the time? I I think it's just he's 21.
1: At times, the choices that people sometimes frame it at for for players especially defensively of like oh do you want to get bigger or do you want to get faster i think at certain points those are false because especially with certain players like you can work on both at the same time and it's not necessarily a sacrifice sure. but there are not only in terms of the physical elements you know like what part of your body do you want to work on and how much they're also just like different parts of the skill set that are important. And I, I think for Ingram, something that matters is what kind of what kind of system do you want to do? Like because if, if you want him in a switching system, his mentality, his execution, his footwork, and I think footwork might actually be the most important thing here, is very different than if you just say, hey, this is your guy, try to figure out, you know, navigate screens, maybe use maybe you do some switching depending on what actions that guy's involved in. But Knowing what your team wants is going to be extremely important in terms of figuring out where he goes on that end of the floor.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and that also goes back to the continuity I was talking about. Because the the Lakers, the thought at the beginning of the year was the Lakers were going to be a switch-heavy team, going to play small ball, try to switch everything. There's going to be some LeBron at five, some Kuz at at five. Um, And it wasn't particularly effective. Uh, so then the Lakers kind of switched up the scheme into some drop coverages, kind of gave that up recently. But I think Brandon is a guy who, as I said before, he's he's a pretty smart guy. His basketball IQ is high, and I, I think that's right. Though settling on a system is going to be very important uh, for all the guys. But Brandon, I think probably more than others. Then again, you get back into the question of continuity and injuries and all of that. So I, I think that you know is my first answer. It's been tough for the Lakers to really settle on who they are defensively and offensively, but especially defensively because they've had guys in and out of the lineup all the time. Um, But I like Brandon probably most guarding threes, um, sometimes even fours if he bulks up a little bit. Um, But he's a one or two offensively, and he's got to be, I think he's a three, probably a three, four defensively, and he can switch. I, I don't want him, you know, guarding centers primarily. I don't want him switching depending on what position he's listed at. Uh, nominally, I don't necessarily want him switching on fives that much. But yeah, I, I think he's fine one through four switching. So it kind of depends on are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to play drop coverages? Are you going to blitz? Are you going to mix it up? Are you going to switch one through five? Are you just switching like size guys? So I I think settling on that system and hopefully having the health to be able to settle on a system is going to be big for granted.
1: The other major factor that will determine that for who for Ingram and everybody else is just who else is on the team. And I think that's the the big, big question here. And so I will let you be as general or specific as you choose to be. But but, and, and the hard thing with this is it always it always depends on supply. I mean, that's obviously, you know, you could, could, it's the easy answer is the best player who's willing to say yes. But what kind of, what needs, what types of players do you think make the most sense? And if you want to get more specific than that, you have free license to. But, you know, like if you're sitting there going, okay, obviously this team under, uh, did not get to expectations, there are a bunch of different reasons why we talked about some of them at the beginning. But to get to where they want to go, what kind of archetypes, what sort of fits do you think they need?
0: Well, I I think the Lakers have, been pretty open at least recently um about what they see as the need at least to have more options and i think it's shooting Um, does that come from a superstar sure hopefully if you can get a superstar in free agency or via trade um great but i think kind of more Depth, more depth of shooting. I think, especially around LeBron James, more depth of shooting. We've seen it—the Reggie Bullock trade, the Mike Muscala trade. uh, Those were done because the Lakers identified a need for more shooting. Um, So I think reliable shooting and depth of reliable shooting. if, If that guy is also a really good defensive player, or if he is also, you know, a a superstar who can score you 25 points a game, that's great. That's probably ideal. But uh, yeah it's i think shooting the need for just kind of more depth of shooting uh is is going to be what really takes the lakers closer to where they want to go you know as i said before Kyle Kuzma was shot the ball really well last year his rookie year hasn't shot it that well this year Josh that his knee has been bothering him he hasn't shot the ball very well <clears throat> excuse me um so yeah I, I think just kind of finding depth of shooting is uh and and that could come internally too you know reggie bullock can stay around mo Wagner can develop as a shooter um so but i, I think that's what the lakers number one need is going to be is, is going to be uh finding some guys that can, can can stretch the floor more and and you i mean you can also tell the, the lakers have been a poor free throw shooting team for a few years now and they're the worst in the league at least last when i checked. So. I think that just adding shooting to the roster is going to impact so many things, obviously offensively providing space um, and allowing LeBron to do more of his work, getting to the basket and, and finding open guys in, in the corners and all of that. And also it gets you some free hidden points at the line that, you know, the Lakers haven't gotten this year because they're shooting in the low 60s. So I think, uh, or see the high segment, shooting into 60s. I haven't checked recently to see uh, exactly where the free throw shooting for the team is, but, um, yeah, I think shooting is going to be the uh the, the main thing that that this team needs.
1: Shooting is a a good general category for yeah, them. Six, I I 59%
0: 69% on the year.
1: Well, and uh, kind of an ancillary thing with that is the Lakers are fifth from the bottom in the league in free throw attempt rate this year. So that's, you know, free throws as a proportion of shots. And I think some of that is because when you have guys that aren't good at free throw shooting, they don't necessarily push in the same, in the same mechanism. And also having more spacing creates lanes. You can get to – you get more momentum, all that kind of stuff. I think that all fits together. I would say the other big factor – if we're talking I, – I mentioned before the idea of first-world problems. And so for me, if I'm thinking about where the Lakers want to get to – The other thing they need is a a player who can be the best defensive player on this team, ideally the best defensive player on a very good team, who fits in with whatever philosophy they end up choosing. So you could... Go with a you know one of those big centers. You know Rudy Gobert won Defensive Player of the Year last year. You can go with that sort of model. You can go with somebody at a very different position. Like there are lots of different ways to do it. But I think they need some uh, somebody who can go at the top of it, uh, the top of the line, top of the pyramid, and then everything else will flow down from that. But you need that player because I mean they've had problems this year in transition defense. They've had problems this year in help defense. And so getting that player, if if they want to get to the rarefied era. As, I agree with you that shooting is important, but however they see the concept of this team, I think that's another really important distinction to make.
0: Yeah, I think that is, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, if that is another superstar player, um, like I said, via trade or via uh, free agency, kind of having that building block to direct the, you know, so it's, it's LeBron. Whoever the young guys and that other kind of core piece, so you can build the team in that direction and kind of know what you have and and know how to fit the ancillary pieces around that. I think that is a that's been an important lesson for for this from this year also.
1: I think the way I want to end this is just getting getting your feel. I mean, it's something you're closer to the organization and watching the games regularly and all that than I am. Is if who of that group of young guys do you think? Knowing what you know, I mean, obviously you don't know everything, but knowing what you know, who do you think is the most and least likely to be a part of this team, let's say two years from now? like What's your read on kind of how the, not how the power rankings are going, but just kind of how how this is shaking out? Because they're going to have to make decisions just like every team does.
0: Yeah, I would say, and this is kind of my educated guess, uh, but... I will, uh, I'm going to answer this question strategically, but my my educated guess is that the guy at the top of the list is Kyle Kuzma. Um, I think he is most likely to be around, and this isn't to say that all of them won't, all of the young guys won't be around uh, two years from now, but if you're making me pick, you know, if you're making me do a ranking, I would say the guy that I am very, very confident will be around in two years is Kyle Kuzma. I for for myriad reasons, he also, I think he's just like, he can, he can fit in any type of scheme. Offensively, he can kind of mesh in, in various ways. Um, and, and I know the organization is really high on him. And he's becoming a lot more vocal, which Coach Walton has been talking about and becoming more of a leader. You know, there's been kind of the viral clips about Him, you know, encouraging LeBron to play defense and going back and forth with him a little bit. And so that vocal leadership has been kind of a new thing. Kuz has always talked about, but as far as being a leader on the team, that's kind of a developing thing that has been uh, sorely needed and and wanted by everybody. So I would say Kyle Kuzma is the the guy that will definitely be here in two years, although I, I have a suspicion that all four of them may be.
1: They very well could. Anything else you feel like we should we should
0: definitely discuss? No, just I. I thank you for having me on. I'm sitting here in in Toronto, looking out at the uh, at various construction here, getting ready for the uh, for the game tomorrow night. So. Well, that's that's good. Just a, thank you for having me on. I love the show. I'm always listening, and I'm a big fan of yours, so it was fun chatting with you.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm jealous. Toronto is one of the few NBA cities I've never been to. So I, at some point, in, I will be there, but it just hasn't happened yet.
0: There, there you go. Maybe there's a finals in your future.
1: Hey, that would be a great way to do it. So thanks again for taking the time. All right, brother, no problem. Thanks again to Aaron Larsoul for taking the time to come on. You can listen to the official Lakers podcast here on Podcast One and whatever podcast player you so choose. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Larsoul, A-A-R-O-N-L-A-R-S-U-E-L. And thanks again to Jared Dubin for coming on. You can read him all over the internet and you can follow him at JA Dubin5, J A D U B I N, and then the number five. Really enjoyed the combined conversation here, got a good sense of kind of where a couple of big stories are. And that's really going to be what Real Jam Radio is, you know, moving forward for the next little while. Next week, my assumption right now is that it will be draft-related, though that depends on San Vecini's availability. He is obviously a very, very busy man this time of year, so if I can get him, that's what it'll be. If not, then I, I don't exactly know, might, e- might wait a week or might end up just doing a different college basketball slash draft guest. We'll, we'll figure that out when it comes to it. And then, as I talked about with Jared, you know, these next couple weeks, we're kind of learning different things about where teams are, very focused on the playoffs, but also, you know, this is going to be the last month to see where guys like Trey Young are. And I don't think Trey Young's going to play in Summer League. So, seeing where these players are, and, and that's going to be exciting too. So, I'm excited to see where all of this goes. And, of course, Real Gym Radio will be there with you along the way. If you want to support the show, you can do so in a lot of different ways. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's also great if it's up a podcast. If you want to be super awesome, you can do it both places should you use a different podcast player. Apple's still really huge in our business, so that's why it's important. Also, you can... Word of mouth, extremely important. And subscribing, downloading every episode. That is a way to get in the habit. And the show comes out at at weird times. That's just the way it works due to my availability, due to guest availability. And of course, the most important thing with this show and any others that have them is checking out our advertisers. BetOnline.ag, use that podcast one promo code and TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Dunked On will be back in full swing. Nate is getting back from his trip. I recently got back from New Orleans as well. And so we'll be back on our normal schedule starting on Sunday with the 15 and 60, so if you want more of my day-to-day stuff. You can check that out. Our podcast this week were on topics that people are really interested in and worst contracts in the league, and then going back through the last few drafts and picking our hits, misses, and lessons learned. So I thought that those were both good exercises. Of course, you can find those through Dunked On. Written work primarily at The Athletic. Have a bunch of different stuff coming out in the near term and already starting to work on some of my bigger projects, which will be over the next you know few months, but have more immediate stuff I wrote on the Bledsoe extension. I have a piece on DeMarcus Cousins that's coming out soon and and a lot of other things in the works. So that's exciting. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, danieleru nba at gmail.com is the way to do it. Twitter is too ephemeral. And if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is my promise. I don't always respond. I don't always respond right away. Sometimes you, there are people that could tell you, like uh, it can be months later, but I read everything. It pops into a specific place in my inbox. I read it immediately, but I want to give a thoughtful response if I'm going to give one. So I sometimes that takes some time because I need to, you know, be in the place where I have some time to really think about it and, and, to, and to really write it. So But I do read it. And if that's you like a guest or you like a subject or something like that, or you don't like a guest or you don't like a subject, I keep it all in-house, obviously. So you can do that as well. We'll be back next week. I'm guessing it'll be draft-related. Don't know that for sure. It's enough rambling for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
3: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect call 1888 recovery now that's 1888 recovery